Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. All right, so this week we're wrapping up the book of Exodus. We have a double portion. It's Vayakel and Pekudeh. And it's also a special Sabbath. It's Shabbat HaChodesh, the Sabbath of the new moon. And it's called the Sabbath of the new moon because it is the Sabbath that precedes the coming month of Nisan, which is the first month of the religious calendar. And so um, God designated this as his first month when he was getting ready to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so the reading that we have for this, for this special Shabbat, is from Exodus 12, verses 1 through 20. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove un remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. So that's, that's the scripture that's traditionally read on this Sabbath before the new moon. And how appropriate is it that we get to read about the coming Passover and what we're about to enter into, a time of redemption, a time of renewal. And that's one of the things when God was speaking to Moses and telling him to mark this as the first month, something major was about to happen. It was about to be a time of renewal, a time of new beginnings. And as I was thinking of all the things that we were going to talk about today, I began to wonder if, if y'all had any plans this afternoon or if, or if we were going to go through to dinner time, right? But I'll cut it a little bit short. We'll, we'll eat lunch, right? But, but I was thinking even, it's like, well, there's so many things to say. And then this was a long passage to read, right? And sometimes long passages, you can get lost in it. But I felt like it was important because we are about to enter into Passover two weeks from now. And as I was reading it, I was thinking about how perfectly this really fits into today's message because um, 
think what we're going to find as we go through today's message, we're going to see pictures of redemption and the renewal that God brings. And so this is just the the intro to that picture because we're talking about God's deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt, right? And that's just a foreshadowing. It's, it's one, I'm saying it's just a foreshadowing, right? I'm not making small of it. It's huge, but it's a foreshadowing of the redemption that we have through Yeshua, our Messiah, and how we're brought out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. And and so we're we're coming through today. We're getting ready to enter into, we're going to conclude Exodus, and we're going to begin Leviticus next week. And sometimes people think, oh, we're going into Leviticus. I wonder if I can sleep through this one. And then we got the woo because Chris understands what we're coming into because we get to see how do we draw near to this awesome God and how do we see Yeshua as the one who brings us into his presence. But I'm not going to spoil the the coming months. We'll get to that in time. But today we're going to finish the reading in Exodus. But but one of the things that I was thinking on with what was taking place, God tells Moses, this is the beginning of months for you. And where they were in, in time is that they were still in bondage in Egypt. They hadn't been brought out yet, but God was telling them what was to come, the redemption, the renewal that was to come. And if you recall from the stories that we went through, Moses came the first time and told the children of Israel that God had heard them and he was going to bring them out. And he approaches Pharaoh and Pharaoh just doubles down on the burden that was placed on the children of Israel such that when, well, such that they they blamed Moses and said, look, it's because of you that our lives have become so embittered. Moses leaves and then God sends him back and says, now you're going to see the salvation of God. And he comes back the second time and he tells him, hey, God's come to uh, deliver you. But they were so beat down that they couldn't even hear his words of encouragement. Right? They, they were without, they were, you know, uh, worn to the point of being without breath. And they couldn't listen to his encouragement. So their ability to believe and to see what God was doing was limited by their circumstances. But even in that moment, God was bringing about what was needed. He was moving to take them out of Egypt and to set his sanctuary in their midst. And speaking of bringing his sanctuary into their midst, that's what we've been talking about the past couple of weeks, right? Moses brought the children of Israel to Mount Sinai. God came down on the mountain, brought them into covenant with him, and then began to give instructions to Moses of, here's what you need to do to create a space for my presence to dwell in your midst and within you. So we've been talking about that. We're going to talk more about that today. But what I feel like a key part of the message today is around the idea of being able to look past what circumstances are and to see what God is doing and to have faith and trust in what's to come. This past week in my office, I received a package in the mail. I may have received it the week before. I'm not very good at checking the mailbox. But when I got it, I, I got this package out, and I said, well, I don't remember ordering anything. So then I looked at the the package, and it said, Pastor Chris Franklin. I'm like, oh, that, I know I didn't send myself this, because I, I, don't, I don't put Pastor Chris Franklin. I mean, it would be more like the most honorable, esteemed, reverend <laughs> Chris Franklin. <laughs> so I knew it wasn't from me, right? And so, so I got the package and I, I opened it up and I was well. I looked on the outside to see well who could this have been from, and, but there was no indication. And I opened it up, and there was no, there was nothing inside as to you know like the a gift card or anything like that to say hey this is from so and so, but it was a bag of coffee. And so I was like ah oh, bag of coffee this is great I'm I'm happy about a, a bag of coffee, and so I. Uh, you know, made a cup of coffee with it and enjoyed the coffee. It was great. It was a light roast, which I happen to like. So whoever sent it knows what I like. And then I paid, I looked at the, you know, who makes it. And it's like, it's this company called Life Boost. And I think I'd seen some ads about Life Boost, but I don't really know anything about Life Boost. And, and then I saw that the, you know, how like the brand or the, that Life Boost was the maker, but then this line that they made, it was optimist. 
He's an optimist. And I was like, huh, maybe what I need is this optimistic life boost, right? Because here I am, I'm kind of feeling worn down. I'm kind of feeling ragged, run out, don't have a lot of optimism. I'm like, well, huh, maybe, I, maybe this is a little sign to me that I need a little renewal and that maybe I need to actually uh, begin to change the, my focus and the way I'm seeing things and thinking on things. So that's been great. This week I've gone and made a, a couple of cups of coffee with it, and each time I'm like, okay, no, no, I need to be an optimist. Now, I may look at circumstances and say, hey, the reality is that things can be difficult and you can be worn down, but is that really the way I need to set my mind? It's like, no, I need to set my mind as an optimist to say I recognize reality, but I can see beyond what reality is and I can take hold of what the promise is. I can take hold of what God's doing and believe for that, right? So being, op being an optimist does not mean just, you know, forgetting what is going on. It's saying I can see beyond the immediate and look forward to what's going on. So whoever sent that, uh, the life boost and optimist to me, I really appreciate it very much. It's been awakening me in more ways than one. So, <laughs> so it's been good. But I was thinking on it too, about even in these times when we run through challenges and trials, that's like a, that's an aspect of the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness is we get uh, formed and fashioned. We begin to uh, stop leaning on ourselves and start leaning on God. And then he actually grows us and prepares us for this next level that he's taking us to. And speaking of which, one of the things that happened in the wilderness on the way from Egypt to Mount Sinai is God gave the children of Israel the Sabbath. And that was, you know, one of the first things, right? To say, Here, here's the Sabbath, and I'm going to test you to see what's in your heart, whether or not you're going to listen to my word. And then he's preparing them, bringing them to Sinai to bring them into covenant with him. And one thing that we've seen here, uh, I guess the past couple of weeks, and then also today, is multiple mentions of the Sabbath in our portions. So in Exodus 31, which I, oh, I guess I do have the scripture here. Okay. Exodus 31, verses 12 to 17, this is from... Uh, one or two weeks ago, not sure. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, two things stood out to me as I was reading this. One is he says, it is holy to you. And then he says, it is holy to the Lord. Right, So the Sabbath is set apart unto you and set apart unto the Lord. It's a time of refreshing and renewal. It's a time that is a sign unto the children of Israel that God created the heavens and earth, and it's a covenant that is kept forever. Right Now, what we read there is it said that it's a reminder of how the Lord made the heaven and earth. And within this, there's a, uh, there's a connection back to the Sabbath in creation. But one of the things that um, actually didn't stand out in this, in this reading, but I want to find it here real quickly. In this passage we just read, within the Hebrew, so it's in, it's in Exodus 31.16, the translation here said, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations. But in the Hebrew, specifically what it says, is it says that the children of Israel, and let me find it here so I don't mess this up, the children of Israel shall guard or keep 
the Sabbath, to make or to do the Sabbath throughout their generations. Okay, so it says they shall guard it and they shall make it. Okay, so that's kind of interesting because to guard the Sabbath or to keep it, well, we can kind of understand what that means. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to observe it. I'm going to take a day of rest. I'm not going to do malachah, creative works. But then there's to make the Sabbath. How many times do you say, I'm going to make Sabbath or today I'm making Sabbath? It's like, no, you don't, you don't say that. What would that even mean to make the Sabbath? And what I've heard on this is that essentially the Sabbath is a, it's the seventh day that God set apart to be a day of rest. And the Sabbath day exists, right? But you don't actually, you may live through a day of Sabbath and not even know that you lived through a day of Sabbath, okay? Because there's, uh, there's, there, you know, even if you look back to where you've been, maybe you, maybe you didn't observe the Sabbath in the past. And so you could walk through a seventh day and not know it was Sabbath. God knew it was Sabbath, but to you it was just a regular day. But when we come together and we say, I'm going to set this day apart, I'm going to cease from doing work, then I'm actually going to make it into a day of rest. I'm actually going to make it into a time of meeting with God. It's not a time of meeting with God unless you actually make it a time of meeting with God. Does that make sense? It's the appointments there, but did you make it? And so you guard it, you observe it, but in so doing, you're actually making a special point in time where you can interact and relate with God. Now, I feel like that ties back to Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. So within, within Kiddush on, on Friday nights, we're always going through right at the very beginning, and we're talking about God creating the heavens and the earth. And in, in, verses, in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, I'll read this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, that he had done in creation is a way of trying to explain the way that the Hebrew is written. So if we were to go and read like what was the literal translation of that passage when he says, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified because on it he ceased from all his work that God created to make. Okay, that to make is the same to make that we read about the Sabbath of make the Sabbath. Well, if we think about this, God created for six days all of creation. And on, on the seventh day, he ceased from his work. He ceased from his creative works. And in ceasing from his creative works, he was making a time in which he could relate with his creation. Because he had been forming and forming and forming, and now he was taking a day where he was just going to re relax and enjoy and relate to his creation instead of continuing to tinker with it. So in his resting, he created a time of relationship. And I think that's what we see here. It says that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because on it he ceased from all his work, which God created to make the Sabbath, is what I would think. Right? He made the Sabbath. And what is the Sabbath? That, that's the time of relating with his creation, having relationship with his creation, and even looking forward to the day that will be entirely Sabbath. Because it's not just about the seventh day of the week being a day of rest. The seventh day of, of the week having this rest is a foretaste of the messianic era, right? When God's presence dwells with man, when we relate with him to a higher degree. And so each Sabbath, when we celebrate, when we make the Sabbath, we're making a time where we're relating with God and looking forward to and even proclaiming the coming day of Yeshua's reign and proclaiming that God created the heavens and the earth 
And on the seventh day, he made time for us. And on the seventh day, we make time for him. Okay, so so one of the things that we we did talk about this in some detail last year. We're gonna we're gonna talk about it some more um, this week. One of the things. All right, so if we were to back up, I mentioned how God spoke of the Sabbath in Exodus 31, and then this portion opens up speaking of the Sabbath again. Well, right before the scripture spoke of the Sabbath in Exodus 31. Moses had been on the mountain the first time for the 40 days and 40 nights. He had been receiving from God the instructions on how to create the tabernacle and all the vestments and the consecration of the priests that would be needed. And then God says, now, tell the children of Israel, the children of Israel they will keep my Sabbath. And then he gives them the tablets of the testimony. And then we have the whole sin of the golden calf and everything that was going on from Exodus 32 to 34. Then this week, our portion opens up with God again reiterating the command to keep the Sabbath. Here in Exodus 35, let's go ahead and go there. Exodus 35, 1 through 3. Moses assembled all the congregation of the, of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. So here we have the command about the Sabbath. And then as we continue forward in this week's portion, we go and see the work actually beginning for the creation of the tabernacle and the consecration of the priests. And if you're listening to this series, right? You have the Mishkan and the vestments, you have the Sabbath, you have the golden calf, then you have the Sabbath, and then you have the Mishkan and the vestments. You've got the bookends, right? You've got repeating going on. It's the chiasm structure that we've talked about before. Now, we've talked about this several times, but I think it's always worthwhile to go through and say, okay, what is the structure of the chiasm? Why are these so cool? And to reiterate that these are all over the Torah. The way that God wrote his word, he embedded all kinds of structures that would help us to understand his scripture in a whole new light. And the, the chiastic structure is commonly seen, and it's uh, it helps us to understand what God's trying to convey to us. And so the way it works, it's called an atbash structure. And that's because it's taking the first letter of the Hebrew Aleph Beit, then the last letter of the Hebrew Aleph Beit, then the second letter of the Aleph Beit, and then the second to last letter. That's how you get atbash, okay? But it's because it's trying to reflect the structure where you start with a topic, go on to a second topic, third topic, and those mirror topics in reverse order on the other side of the story. So you have a A that is marked off with an A prime and B with B prime, C, C prime. And then you have some, eventually you will hit the center of the structure and then that's where it begins to work back out in the same order that you came in. and. To understand what's going on is you, you can look at the outer parts and find out what they're pointing to. And this thing that they're pointing to is kind of the central focus. The second half of the book of Exodus is a chiasm with multiple chiasms even embedded within it. We're only going to talk about this high-level one. And it actually starts out before, well, it, it starts out back in Exodus 24, right at the end of our portion when God cut covenant with the children of Israel and called Moses up onto the mountain. And so I want to read that verse where it begins. 
in Exodus 24, 15 through 16. We don't have it on the uh, proclaim here, but that's okay. We'll keep our eye on the, the chiasm. Okay, so Moses ascended the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for a six-day period. He called the Moses on the seventh day from the midst of the cloud. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop before the eyes of the children of Israel. Moses arrived in the midst of the cloud and ascended the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, so that's the entrance, or that's the beginning of this chiasm. Its counterpart on the very end is right at the end of this week's portion, right at the end of Exodus, from Exodus 40, verses 34 to 35. The scripture says the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So again, you start with the cloud of God's presence and you end with the cloud of God's presence. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting for the cloud rested upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the cloud was raised up from upon the tabernacle, the children of Israel would embark on all their journeys. If the cloud did not rise up, they would not embark until the day it rose up. For the cloud of the Lord would be on the tabernacle by day, and fire would be on it at night, before the eyes of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. So you start out with God's presence on the mountain. You conclude with God's presence on the mountain. The first time Moses enters into the mountain, into the cloud, the second time he can't enter into the cloud because the glory of the Lord was so powerful and overwhelming. So if we think about this, the glory of God was on the mountain, but the glory of God was to a greater degree in the tabernacle. For Moses could enter the one on the mountain, but he could not enter in the tabernacle. So God was coming closer. God was coming closer. Okay, because within his redemption and restoration, God is progressively coming closer to his creation. Right? Because if you go all the way back to the fall, the children of Israel, or Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. They were no longer in the presence of God. But God was going to move forward to bring restoration to where he again could relate to that level, on that level, and even greater with his children. But he was going to move in that restoration by measure throughout time. So he comes down on the mountain, and then the children of Israel, those who have a heart that desires to make a place for God, create a place for him. And when they do, his presence comes into a greater degree, right? And then if we fast forward to Pentecost and those who are seeking a relationship with God, they make a, themselves a tabernacle and his spirit comes and dwells within them. And then we look forward to a day when God's presence will dwell with man. And so, so what we have though, is within this chiasm, you have the glory cloud of God, and then you have instructions regarding the tabernacle with its construction and the priesthood. Then you have the command of the Sabbath, and then you have the episode of the golden calf, and then we see in reverse order, command for the Sabbath, and then the actual construction of the tabernacle and the consecration of the priesthood, followed by God's presence dwelling with man in the tabernacle. Okay, but the center of this chiasm is the golden calf. And so we can look at this, and one of the one of the teachings I heard on it was, okay, well, the glory cloud, that's God's desire to dwell with man, right? Because he's coming down on the mountain in order to bring a people to himself, and then he's coming down into the tabernacle so that he can be closer and actually dwell among man. And so we see with the tabernacle, we're creating a space for God's presence. And in the Sabbath, we're creating time. So it's both space and time that we're setting apart for God, for his presence to come and dwell within us. But then the question is, well, how does the golden calf factor into this? Because the golden calf, I mean, that's not a very good thing. I mean, here we have... The people building, a, creating a calf and God being ready to annihilate the people. How does that play into God and his presence and desire to dwell with us? 
what I heard on it was the idea of, well, it's a fa man's failed attempt to bring God and how that can kind of play into it. But I'm not, I'm not really satisfied with that. Yes, it was a failed attempt to relate to God. But I'm not satisfied with that answer because if we're really talking about this chiasm being God's desire to dwell with man, and the key central aspect is not man's failure to create a space, you know, to bring God's presence, but rather actually it's looking to the success of one man who stands in the gap and brings redemption and restoration for a people who have fallen. Okay? So it's really, so I think the center of it is not the golden calf, but the Redeemer. Okay? And Moses stood as a Redeemer for the children of Israel. Right? If we recall, he's getting the tablets and God had given him all the instruction. And then the children of Israel make this calf and God says, go down. Stand aside because I'm going to wipe out this people. I'm going to start over with you. And in it, Moses sees an opportunity and he says, hang on, you said stand aside and I'm going to wipe these people out. If I don't stand aside, will you not wipe them out? Right. So he begins to stand as the intercessor. And then we go through a progression of Moses bringing the children of Israel from the brink of destruction back into a place of relationship where God's presence will come and dwell in their midst, right? So he stands in the gap, and, and the progression goes that he asks, he asks God not to destroy them. And God says, okay, I'm not going to destroy them. And so then Moses goes down, breaks the tablets, grinds the golden calf into uh, bits and has the children drink, and then he goes back and, and it calls them to repentance, okay, to repent for what they've done, and then he goes back up the mountain to intercede and to ask, begin asking for God's forgiveness. And so then God says, okay, but my presence isn't going to go with you. And then Moses again goes another 40 days and begins to intercede more, and in his intercession, doesn't just ask God to forgive the people, but he asks God to extend the grace that Moses himself has merited before God to the children of Israel who didn't have a merit of their own. And God says, I have done what you've asked. I've taken the grace that you have and I've given it to them and now my presence will go with you. Right? So this is the center of what God's desire to dwell with man is, is the, is the redemption, the restoration, the redeemer who comes and gives hope to a people who have no hope, who gives merit to a people who have no merit, whose grace extends and covers all who will come to God and repent and believe, right? And now, so we know that Moses was the former redeemer, and that there was a coming Redeemer who would be like unto Moses, but yet greater. And that coming Redeemer is our Messiah, Yeshua, right? And the story of his coming is really played out right there in the story, almost paralleling exactly what was taking place with Moses, right? Moses is on the mountain. He's in the cloud. He's in heaven with God. He's in God's space and time. The people have sinned. They've fallen. They're worthy of destruction. And he says, go down. And Yeshua says, I'll go down, but let me go and intercede for them. Let me call them to repentance. Don't annihilate them. Let me call them to repentance. So Yeshua comes and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he goes up to further intercede and ask for God to send his presence to dwell among the children of Israel. And God sends the Spirit into the, the, the disciples and into those who believe there at Pentecost. Right. So you have the picture of the Redeemer. And that is the central focus that makes God's presence able to come. 
That is the picture of God's dwelling with man. And so what do we have here, right? We had Moses who was standing before God. And I think maybe I should go over there to that passage. God tells Moses to go down. And what happens, Moses had to feel in that moment of what can I say and what can I do? Because God said, go descend for your people that you brought up from the land of Egypt has become corrupt. They've strayed quickly from the way that I've commanded them and they have made themselves a molten calf, prostrated themselves to it and sacrificed to it. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Okay, within the scripture, that that was the end of a conversation, and it was followed up by a second conversation, which wasn't broken by any text here except for, and the Lord said to Moses. And he says, I have seen this people, behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Desist from me and let my anger flare up against them, and I shall annihilate them, and I shall make you a great nation. Now, I pointed out that here the scripture said, and the Lord said to Moses. Because when, it, when the scripture says that, it's saying that God had made the statement of what had taken place, that the children of Israel had made this calf. And then Moses just stood. He had no words that he could say. There was nothing that you can say. It's like, yes, they did that. And how can any defense be made for their behavior? It's kind of like in the day of judgment when we stand before the Lord and we see all that we've walked in and we're not going to be able to speak. You know, when we stand before us, when we stand before God and our sin is laid before us, you won't be able to speak because what can you say, right? But we have an intercessor. And so when, when the Lord said, then the Lord said to Moses, okay, you didn't respond. Now, look, I'm going to wipe them out. And now Moses begins to plead. And he, he begins to ask God, why would you do this? You know, not historically, why would you do this? I understand they have done wrong and they, I can understand why you would annihilate them. But what is it going to lead to? What's the purpose of your annihilation of them? What will it attain? And he begins to plead on their behalf and begin to work out this reconciliation. But in the moment, as Moses was standing there silent, he had to just be like, it's, it's kind of over. It's over. What's There's no hope. But then God left him a door of opportunity. And he said, oh, I see the door. of I see this window of, of opportunity. And now let me begin to intercede and let me hope on your grace, on your compassion. And, and call out for that and your faithfulness, Lord, that you promised from generation to generation and to the forefathers. And, and so God responds to that. Now, Moses was just a man, right? But he was a man who was created in the image of God, just as all mankind are created in the image of God. And man, well, in this week's portion, man is given the task of creating a sanctuary for God's dwelling, right? Because... Um, In Exodus 35, 4, in this week's portion, Moses said to the entire assembly of the children of Israel, saying, This is the word that the Lord has commanded, saying, Take from yourselves a portion for the Lord. Everyone whose heart motivates him shall bring it as the gift for the Lord. Gold, silver, copper, turquoise, purple, and scarlet wool. And he goes on to list all these things. But it's, take a teruma, take this gift unto the Lord, this portion unto the Lord. Everyone whose heart motivates him, come, contribute to the building of the sanctuary, be a part of creating this place for God's presence in your midst. And specifically, he commissions Bezalel to carry out the work of building the tabernacle and puts him over all of it. And then he also puts Aholiab along with him. But Bezalel, it's important that Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, is the one who is put, is commissioned first and foremost to do the work of creating the dwelling presence of God. 
And a lot of it comes down into the meaning behind his name. Okay, so Bezalel in, in Hebrew can be broken down into meaning in the shadow of God. In the shadow of God, Bezalel El, in the shadow or shade of God. So as God's overshadowing him. But additionally, this name can be connected to connected to creation, okay? Back in creation, Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now when the scripture says in the image of God, he created them, it's specifically this bottom part, B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God, he created him. Now if you look at the beginning of in the image, it's Betzel, and the beginning of Elohim, or the short form of Elohim, is El. So you have Betzalel. So there's a connection between the one that is being given the wisdom, the discernment, the skill to create the tabernacle and oversee the construction of God's place on the earth, is the one who is in the shadow of God, in the very image of God. Okay? And he is, he is in the sh- he's in the shadow of God, the very image of God. He is given wisdom, and the scriptures say that um, he is one whom God has given. Let me see here, guys. Here, Exodus thirty-five thirty. Moses said to the people of Israel, "See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. He has filled him with the spirit of God." with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs. Okay? So, that sounds a lot like Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, speaking of the coming Messiah. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. There's something going on here with Bezalel, where the Spirit of God is being placed in him in wisdom and discernment, understanding, skill to create this tabernacle. This one who is created in the image of God, who is the son of Uri. What is Uri? My light. The one who is the son of light, the one who is the light who has come into the darkness, who has overcome the darkness. And I think of this as being the very image of Yeshua, right? From Colossians 1, 12 through 17, the scripture says, We give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before him, and and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, absolutely, yes. Speaking of the Messiah and Zechariah as well, absolutely. And so, within this whole picture that's going on, right, you have God's desire to dwell with man and his glory coming down. And at the center, you have the one who is in the very image of God coming to bring restoration and redemption. The man who, against all odds, stands and earns redemption for man and renewed hope. And not just renewed hope that they wouldn't be annihilated, but renewed hope that the very presence of God could dwell in their midst to a greater degree than even what they saw on the mountain when they shook with fear and said, no, Moses, you go in here for us. But now God's coming in his presence because a people came and responded to this grace given to them and with motivated hearts gave to create a place and time for God 
to meet with him and to dwell with him in close relationship, creating the space and time. So within, within all of this, right, we have a Redeemer who's taken us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have one who, when all looked as though it was lost, stood in the gap and made a way. Who didn't just make a way for us to live, but made a way for us to live in close relationship with God. Right, with God's purpose being this restoration of relationship to know Him, to walk in wholeness. And so I feel like the message, one of the key messages today is not to give up. And whatever we see, whatever we see may be real in the moment, but it's not the end. It's not the where we're going and what's what God is going to make, what He's going to create. A number of years ago, I used to write some blog posts. They've since been removed from the internet. <laughs> Not because there was anything wrong with them. It's just I didn't keep the website going. But but uh, but I did keep copies of those those things I wrote. And one of the things that I had written uh, comes back to me time and time again. And it was one uh, called "Believing in What Can Be." And what prompted me to to write this was that. Uh, there was someone I knew who, I, I can't remember, they were uh, going through hard times or they'd been struggling with something and um, they were seeking to overcome it, but they you know, weren't really going forward. But I was praying for them in it because I wanted to see them break free and go forward into this new aspect of life. But even though I was praying, I wasn't my real belief, my real hope wasn't really aligned with the prayer. Instead, I was still too struck by what I was seeing in the flesh to really come to be the optimist who would say, no, 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 I see what God can do. I see the victory that he can bring. And so I, what I began to occur to me that was that by holding on to the past and being in agreement with it, I was actually obstructing my prayers and belief in what was to come. Right, what I should have been doing was praying and agreeing with what God was going to do instead of agreeing with the past. And so I began to say, well, what if instead of viewing that situation in light of past behavior, what if I saw with a renewed perspective of what may come? Because that's what God does, right? He doesn't look at what we've done and say, that's who you are and condemn. Instead, he calls forth that which he sees and causes that... Um, to come forth, calling things that aren't as though they were, right? And so if we were to look in um, Romans 4, verses 17 through 18, as is written, I have made you the father of many nations, he's speaking to Abraham, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. But it was God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, right? Giving life to the dead is no easy task, <laughs> but God can. And so we need to believe in the power of God to bring about changed lives rather than believing in the power of the past to hold people captive, right? And so along with this comes this renewing of the mind that has to take place where we begin to see with the eyes of Yeshua and believe that God really is capable of doing above and beyond all that we think or ask. From Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be, the glory, be glory in the church and in the Messiah Yeshua throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So keep your eyes fixed on the one who is able to bring life out of death and offer up our prayers in faith, trusting in the one who stands as our Redeemer, the one who is in the image of God and who has sufficient grace for all those who call on him. And as we conclude the reading of Exodus with God's glory coming down into the tabernacle with his presence dwelling among a redeemed people, we will conclude the reading of this week's or of this portion 
with reading from Exodus 40, 33 through 38. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now together. Chazak, chazak, vanit chazek. Be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. Amen. And may we follow where the Lord leads, discerning his presence and the cloud of his presence when it lifts, when it settles, him guiding us fire by night and a cloud by day. Amen. Do anybody have anything that you wanted to share? Thank you. Um, as you were expressing that um, Sabbath, or you were reminding us that in Scripture it says, Sabbath is set apart um, not only for man but also for God. It made me think that it was like in between the both of us. That it, as we kind of understand, it's a very special day. We want to make sure there's the space and the time. So it's like you meet him halfway on a bridge, mm. and he's on the other side. I don't know. It's yeah. just a, a model I got. So it's the connection. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Amen. Amen. Jamie. This bird does sound random. It, it's just his thoughts, but in alignment with what you were saying, as Moses is the mediator and Yeshua sits out. Um, this week was very strange with near-death experiences for a lot of friends that are mm. really on the edge, like I've never seen them mm. before, like whether it was catatonic depression was one, another one, total fixed fetal position, cannot talk, walk, move mm. in a nursing home, like just these extreme things. And what I'm thinking as a result of this, like the golden calf being in the the, the sin being in the center, and I'm not saying these people sinned or anything, but this idea of like Habakkuk 2.2, of pressing in and seeing what the Lord shall say, because people are saying goodbye to some. Others are saying, well, you just got to go and just get infiltrated with more meds and, and, and just even the persons themselves writing themselves off, like mm -hmm. saying their goodbyes. But, and maybe maybe they will pass. I don't know. But when the Lord gives someone a vision that, no, not necessarily so, and to press into that darkness, then we as the community, those around whatever situation, whoever, 24-7, have to press in to the Lord. And what will he say about this? Mm -hmm. Because perhaps yes. he will rescue some. Perhaps he wants mm -hmm. to deliver some rather than, yeah, it was nice, but we're kind of preparing our device. Mm. So I guess all I'm saying for all of us mm. as community, in whatever sphere we find ourselves, as maybe gift of intercession, but just as coming alongside people as believers, that we have to get a word from God, mm -hmm. and we need to stick with that, and we need to be in uh, unity yes. with others, praying through, because perhaps the Lord is not done with the person. Right. And it's very understandable. We've all been at that place where we're tired and we're exhausted, and we're saying, okay, this is uh -huh. not, I'm ready to give yeah. up. But if that's not God's word, and this, like in Yeshua's day, when they took that pallet with the guy who could do nothing, and they dropped them through the ceiling and said, uh -huh. you heal him, and he did, well, perhaps that's the story for some. Yeah. But if we write off and agree, as you say, in the flesh, then perhaps the Lord's will is not really being done. Right. And not that he doesn't work all these things out, but perhaps that was really yeah. not 
his planning purpose. Yeah. So that's a very long yeah. way of saying what you said. Don't give up. Press through. Yes. And let us stand at the wall and see and watch uh-huh. for what the Lord will say. Yes. And Amen. not give up. Amen. Amen. And that's just beautiful because that's really, that's the story of redemption in our lives individually and the whole macro picture. Moses saw the opportunity, he stood to hear, intercede, and see what God will do, right? Even David, when he uh, was praying for his child not to die, he was fasting and praying for days. Then when the child died, he said, well, I did because who knew if the Lord would relent and show mercy, right? Well, same thing here. It's like, don't give up, press in and uh, and see God's compassion and grace. And and ultimately, we're crying out for his purposes to be done. And when you mentioned Habakkuk um, 2, that's actually come up multiple times. I've heard that come up several times here in the past week or so, very much focused around the idea of prayer. And so I wanted to read that verse here before we pray, but Habakkuk 2, 1 through 2, I will stand on, on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. And then, then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. Right. But... Uh, but still, it's it's positioning ourselves to hear what is the word of the Lord to say, Lord, what is your what is your cloud doing? What is your guidance? What would you have me do? What would you have me pray? How would I align my heart, my eyes, my mind with your word and your purposes in this very moment? Amen. Amen. I just had one thing oh. that I wanted to uh, add. Um, I was thinking about when you were talking about... Um, a Moses taking this position as an intercessor, which foreshadowed the position that Yeshua would take when he came as an intercessor for us. And of course, now in Christ, we also have this role as intercessors. And I just think sometimes we just don't see the significance of that. That, that I think the, the enemy or, or ourselves tries to, to make it not seem as such a, a big deal. But it was, you know, as you can see in the story with Moses, it was that it, it, it he actually you know, change the destiny of Israel, you know, and, and God wanted him to partner with him that. And that was such an, an example. And um, so I was thinking about that lately. I've been um, uh, every day joining these Zoom prayer meetings. And there's times when I think that I'm wasting time because I'm doing it like every day and spending at least a couple of hours in Zoom prayer meetings. Um, just a really quick side, new, side note at noon every day, there's a prayer meeting for Israel. So if anybody wants to join that, you know, you're more than welcome. I can give you the info for that. But um, so I've joined these prayer meetings and sometimes I join a prayer meeting for for Ireland, a group from Ireland. And Ireland has become a very wicked and godless nation. And sadly, they've become extremely anti-Semitic, which is ironic. Some of you may know that St. Patrick was actually a Messianic Jew. So um, I felt very, very led to um, pray with them before St. Patrick's Day. And I remember the meeting popped up on my phone. It was kind of like, oh, it's a beautiful day. I want to go outside. I don't want to pray right now. But I thought what God put on my heart about praying for St. Patrick's Day. And sure enough, I got on the phone call and they said, you know, Ireland has all these these uh, parades that are just going to be so wicked and perverse that they're going to have going on all over Ireland. Mm. And I just felt like, yeah, like God wanted me to join in on that. And, and I actually, when I was praying, I mentioned that about how Moses reminded God about his promises, his love for Israel. And I was like, Lord, Remember this godly heritage that you gave Israel, uh, Ireland, you know, with Saint. Remember who Saint Patrick really was. God, remember those promises. Remember your love for Ireland, and just you know. And so I just really felt like I could really feel like God was on that. Like He really wanted me to pray that, and that it was really significant that I joined that. And it's like who knows? Just there's only three of us praying for Ireland. But who knows how that maybe. Mm-hmm has changed things for, for how things went yeah. on St. Patrick's Day. And so I just want to encourage people to not take that for granted, you know, that, that any time God puts it on your heart to pray, that, that you have no idea how you could be changing things in the earth. Yeah. So, Lord, thank you for your love and goodness. Thank you for um, just what you're doing in our midst. Thank you, Lord, that your desire is to dwell with us, to have a relationship with us. And, Lord, you've called us as those who are made in your image in the shadow of God 
to create space and time for you. Lord, may we prepare ourselves as a sanctuary, Lord, that we may have fellowship with you, that we may see your works bring restoration and redemption and renewal in our lives. Lord, help us to walk as optimists, Lord, to to see with renewed eyes the good that you see and to call forth life even out of places of death, Lord. We thank you that you're our Redeemer and our hope, and we give you praise in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.